for hundreds of years, England and subsequently the UK were the heart of the global wine world. The place where wines from almost anywhere that had vineyards and took wine seriously were enjoyed and traded. Britain may have had a reputation for awful food, now a thing of the past, thankfully, but there was no denying that London was the place where wine writing and education were developed and where, often thanks to politics, new styles of wine were invented. But how did British wine culture evolve? Well, I'm delighted to have two exceptionally well-informed guests. Joining us from the heart of Manhattan, just off Broadway, historian Charles Ludington is visiting Associate Professor of Food Studies at New York University and author of The Politics of Wine in Britain. Charles is currently also working on a book about the formative role of the Irish in the Bordeaux wine trade. Henry Jeffries is Fortnum Mason Drink Writer of the Year 2022. His words appear in publications including the Financial Times and The Guardian, and his whiskey expertise explains his role as editor at Master of Malt magazine. Henry's also working on a book. His is about English wine. And I'm Robert Joseph, UK-based author, journalist, business analyst, and actually wine producer in France, and your host for today. Why has this quiet French wine commanded so much attention? Because it is dry, um, how you said, without the age. Le Piat d'Or, irresistibly French. Well, there we had a little taste of Le Piat d'Or, which was one of those iconic wines in Britain in the 1970s, 1980s, into the 90s. And the whole idea of that was about being sophisticated, being French, and how a bottle of wine would actually make you a more acceptable person socially. And of course, France has been part of our way of seeing wine for a very long time. Henry, can you take us back to those early days of wine at France and, and then England? Yes, thank you, Robert. Well, you know, England didn't make its own wine, though did make its own wine, but not terribly much of it. And we were right next to a country that produced an awful lot of wine, France. Roger Scruton puts it rather well, the ancient bond between English thirst and Gascon refreshment, referring to the wines of Gascony. So these two things came together with the marriage of Henry II, the King of England, and Eleanor of Aquitaine in 1152. She brought one of the best dowries ever in history, including most of southwest France, including Bordeaux. So Aquitaine, to all intents and purposes, was, well, it wasn't part of England, but it was run by the English. Though calling them the English is somewhat anachronistic because they were French-speaking nobles, but, you know, we, I suppose we, we, will, we will call them the English. So it was controlled from England and it led to a kind of gold rush of vines. So there were thousands of acres of vines planted, not just around Bordeaux, but around Bergerac, the Dordogne, lots of southwest France. And the, the kind of quantities that were coming into England were quite extraordinary. This is to, to celebrate the marriage in 1308 of Edward II with Isabella of France, a thousand tonneaux of Bordeaux was drunk. That's 1.2 million bottles to celebrate one marriage. Who would have been drinking? I mean, I'm sure the average peasant in, in the English countryside wasn't getting any of that wine, were, were they? Well, I mean, I, I don't know about the, your average peasant, but it wasn't just the nobility that was drinking it. I will give you another statistic. But on average, about 50 million bottles a year were being shipped over the channel 
from Bordeaux to England. And at the time, the population of England was about 5 million. So as our American cousins say, you do the maths. It wasn't just nobility. It was, I think, probably the only time until about the 1960s when French wine would have been drunk by anything apart from the upper classes. So when we get into Chaucer's time and, and Shakespeare's time, that we have these references to sack from Spain. So it wasn't just France, was it? No, 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 of course not. No, no. But, but, but France was the, was the sort of easiest place to get it and the closest place to get it. And Bordeaux was all intents and purposes part of England until the Battle of Castillon in 1453, where a Lord Talbot lost to the French. He gives his name to a rather nice Saint-Julien these days. And then slowly, not, not, not all of a sudden, the sort of balance of power would have shifted to Spain and later to Portugal. So it was the famous quote from Henry IV, part two, from Falstaff. If I had a thousand sons, the first human principle I would teach them would be to forswear thin potations and addict themselves to sack. We generally think of it as sherry, but there would have been Canary sack from the Canary Islands, Malaga. People generally think it was probably a sweet wine, or it certainly would have been sweetened for the English market. Some people think sack means seco, dry in Spanish. Some people, Julian Jeffs, thought it came from sacar, meaning to draw out of a barrel. It's not clear why it's called sack, but it would have been a strong sweet wine from Spain. Just talk about that strong, strong wine, whether dry or sweet. The Bordeaux we'd have been getting in England in those early times wouldn't have been anything like what people would expect today, would it? No, no, it wouldn't. It would have been called, it would have been, the word claret comes from claret, meaning a sort of dark rosé. So it would have been probably all the grapes thrown in together, white and red, not a fine wine, shipped over in the spring and best drunk as soon as possible before it turned to vinegar. And I think the other thing to say was none of this really went into bottles, did it? It came in a barrel and was effectively served into some sort of jug and then into a glass, but it wasn't going into a wine rack in a bottle, was it? No, no. I mean, but strong enough glass wasn't invented until the 17th century. The sort of modern wine bottle didn't come in until the 1630s. So this would have been shipped in cask, drunk out of the barrel as quickly as possible. And coming forward in time, um, the politics, you've just said that we fell out of, um, well, we were at war with the French, um, and then obviously we lost Aquitaine. The politics of our relationships with France in particular have had a role to play, well, with Portugal, hasn't it? Yes, yes. I mean, that's probably more Charles' expertise than me. But when we were at war with the French, huge duty was slapped on French wine. And it wasn't just war with the French, it was war with the Dutch. And the Dutch shipped a lot of wine from France. So England had to find a substitute. And to that, it turned to its oldest ally, Portugal. I think it's a good time to bring you in, Charles, on this, because what happened there? Why did we suddenly start drinking Portuguese wine? And more particularly, how did that Portuguese wine end up being fortified into what we now call port? Well, that's a wonderful question, because as Henry was saying, for centuries, the favorite wine in England had been claret. And then there were some periods when sack was quite popular. But then beginning in the 1670s, well, actually first in the 1660s, the French uh, Minister of Finance, uh, Colbert, put uh, heavy tariffs on English cloth, which was France's biggest import into their thing, which they imported most of from England. 
and as a way to protect their own industry and to penalize the English. And then the English responded starting in 1678, English Parliament, because they had the power, not the kingdom, to impose those taxes on imports. And they did that. Uh, so between 1678 and 1697, there was a reversal in the fiscal scheme such that French wine went from being the least taxed to being the most taxed by 1697. And in that period, what happened was that middle ranking consumers, which was the vast majority of consumers, um, I'm avoiding the term middle class because it wasn't used at the time, but the middle ranks of consumers wanted their less expensive wine and they could no longer have what they were used to, which was claret. So English merchants went out prospecting for a replacement for that. And they continued down the coast, you know, the western coast of Europe, until they got to the, an ally, of course, England's oldest ally, Portugal. And there in northern Portugal, they found a red wine that they offered up back in London as a, or throughout England, actually, as a replacement. But of course, it tasted nothing like the claret that it was meant to replace. Uh, the Portuguese, first of all, didn't really have an export industry for their wines. The wine had been made for, for local consumption. It was probably what we would call, the French would call piquette, but it was made with very different grapes and a very different climate, very different uh, soil from Bordeaux, of course. In the end, uh, what happened was the that wine was gradually brought to please the English palate. Because first of all, the grapes were riper. The English noticed that right away. And the alcohol content was therefore probably stronger because the more sugar you have, the more alcohol you get when the yeast eats the sugar, et cetera, et cetera. So there was something appealing about this wine. This was also a time when sugar was really beginning to enter the English diet in a major way because of the slave plantations in the Caribbean that were producing so much sugar for not just England, but for France and Spain and Portugal as well. In any event, this wine that's now fiscally favored over French wine is offered up and it's not very good, however, in the sense of it, the English complain about it bitterly in the 1690s and in the early 18th century, in part because of secondary fermentations. It's not a very stable wine. What the Portuguese producers, who really only are working at the very early stages of production, that is, they're growing the grapes, they're fermenting the wine, and then they're selling it at a fairly young age. But just before selling it to English merchants who have been you know, prospecting up the river for wine, uh, that they would add some brandy from wine that had been distilled from the year before to stabilize the wine. And then English merchants would then add more brandy when they got the wine down the river, the Douro River to uh, Porto, and then maybe throw in one more just before shipping. So it became fortified that way. But there was another way they fortified it, which is they began to notice that if they added brandy during fermentation. This would actually slow down the fermentation process, which would be very important during a really hot season. So, Henry, if I could just bring you in here, we've got this fortified wine that we weren't previously used to, or the idea of adding brandy to wine. And then in subsequent times, we then have Marsala and Madeira and Sherry, all of which are also fortified. How does that happen? Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot about sort of stabilizing it for travel. But it would seem that the English just got a taste for fortified wine. There are letters from merchants in London to people in Madeira to merchants in Madeira saying, send us more of the of the strong stuff, send us more of the stuff with the brandy in. So I think it became a sort of routine thing from people's love of port. So Masala was a dry, non-fortified wine made in Western Sicily. And then a little puddly in John Woodhouse tried it, thought this would be great for the English market, but it needs sweetening and fortifying it because that's how they like it in London. 
And I'm going to bring you back here on this, Charles, because we keep talking about the English, but of course the Irish, who were not really separate from the English at the time, I guess, were also involved in quite a lot of what was happening then. Obviously, you're doing a book on the Irish in Bordeaux, but they were involved in quite a lot of the trading, weren't they? Uh, indeed, they were quite involved, especially in the Bordeaux trade, for a variety of reasons. But among others, there was a Catholic college built in Bordeaux in 1603. So that attracted Irish seminarians who could no longer be trained uh, in their Catholic faith in Ireland or indeed anywhere in the British Isles uh, as of the late 16th century. And with that, you then had merchants who follow in the footsteps, you might say. They pick up in particular during the so-called Second Hundred Years' War, that is the period 1689 to 1815. In that period, Irish merchants, both Catholic and Protestant, in fact, head to Bordeaux because the English were no longer terribly welcome because of all the wars. And the English, the, the French didn't, drew a distinction, I should say, between uh, the English and the Irish, even though they shared the same king. They were two distinct kingdoms, even if Ireland was a subordinate kingdom and all that. But the Irish went down there and they served as the middlemen between the French producers and the English market, as well as the Irish and Scottish market. Dublin market was really second, but even before anything in Scotland, after the London market. It's also important to say that they were producers in their own right, in that we would today call them négociants éleveurs. That is, they purchased the wines when they were en primeur, as we would say. And then they were the ones who racked the wines and eulogized the wines or topped them up. They were the ones who find the wines and prepared them for the English market. And one of the ways they did that was not so much to fortify Bordeaux, but they did add stronger wines. So almost every year, in fact, what I can tell in the 18th century, really up until the mid-19th, absolutely every year, regardless of the quality, they would add, they would blend in wines from Hermitage, so Syrah, or wines from northeastern Spain, uh, Grenache, wines from down what they called Alicante wine, down uh, Morvedre. And every year they would add small amounts of those wines and then recommence the fermentation to blend them in. So this gets back to the idea that the English wanted stronger stuff. And that's interesting because when we get into the Victorian era and, and later on, we were also doing that. We imported the wine uh, in barrels from France and we did that in London as well. British merchants um, did that as well. Henry, interestingly, your expertise in whiskey, and that brings us Irish whiskey and Scottish whiskey or scotch. Most people think of whiskey as scotch and, and Irish, a bit like Canadian and bourbon as the add-on. But that isn't how it all started, is it? No, no, not at all. The um, For most of the 19th century, Irish whiskey was much, much bigger. Dublin was the um, was the whiskey capital of the world. Jameson, Rowe & Co. There were four big distillers in Dublin. That was the dominant whiskey. Scotch whiskey was generally only consumed in Scotland. The Highland stuff was only really appreciated by the Scots. But this changed. This began to change towards the end of the 19th century when grocers like... John Walker, Johnny Walker of Kilmarnock or Shivers Brothers of Aberdeen, they began blending whiskey and they would store it in old fortified wine barrels, rum casks. Previously, a lot of whiskey would have been drunk basically as soon as it came off the still, certainly in Scotland. And they blended it into a consistent product for the London market. And they were aiming it at cognac drinkers. They were aiming it at people who would have drunk their, their whiskey with, with soda. And there was a shortage of cognac at the end of the 19th century due to phylloxera. So blended Scotch whiskey was designed as a cognac substitute very much for the English market. And the Irish stuff 
couldn't compete. It was considered old fashioned. It wasn't as well marketed. And then you had prohibition, you had Irish independence and the Irish whiskey declined, whereas Scotch whiskey more or less went up and up with a few booms and busts along the way. So we've moved into the, the into the 19th century and other things were happening then. I mean, one of the things that German wine obviously had, had moved in over the years and was surely at one point we were paying more for German, fine German wine, white wines, than we were actually for top um, red Bordeaux. And we also had Australian wine coming in, didn't we, at that, that sort of time. Charles, have you got any thoughts? Well, I think in many ways, uh, in the 20th century, there really wasn't the rediscovery of wine until the 1960s. Uh, so you have, up through the 1870s, the UK, we'll refer to now as, the, as a collectively, because England, Ireland, Scotland all were together as the Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, or the United, United Kingdom, of course. And um, they were all drinking large amounts of port and sherry, and even claret had reemerged in the 1860s because of Gladstone's tariff uh, reductions. But there was a real decline throughout the 20th century, especially with World War I. As you, you pointed out before, phylloxera uh, meant that there was a supply problem. And then you have World War I and poverty of the 1930s and then World War II. But then in the 1960s, you see a real uptick uh, in terms of consumption throughout the UK, but especially Ireland, much of that no longer being part of the UK. But in particular, you see people turning first to German wines, but again, slightly sweet German wines. And then by the 1980s and 90s, Australian wines, which were less sweet, but they were certainly fruit forward. So there's this theme that runs through of stronger wine throughout British history. And we have this, th this thing also of, of the sophistication. I mean, Brits were going on holiday to Spain, uh, France, Italy, and this whole thing of being sophisticated by having an Italian wine. This is the great uh, Shinzano advertisements that, that appeared on television at the time that I think a lot of people remember from those days. Your Cinzano Bianco, signora. Thank you. Ah, yes. Gracias. Ah, do we? No, 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 no. Mine was a Cinzano as well. Ah, oh, that's better. Oh, can't you just smell those Italian wines, suffused with herbs and spices, spices from, from four continents. Why, being boring. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. I'm getting ahead now, sweetie. Jolly good idea. Leonard Rossiter and Joan Collins, who were in those ads, so those ads were really iconic of their age. And Hugh Hudson, who made them, actually went on to make great movies like Chariots of Fire. And you also had the Chianti Fiasco, didn't you? The bottle that people used to put candles in after drinking it, the bottle covered with straw. And indeed, Matthias Rosé, that was another of those successful imports from Portugal, which again was off dry and pink, and I think was actually developed really for the UK. Uh, Henry, do you have any thoughts of Matthias? Yes, well, Matthias was very, um, was very trendy in the 60s. It was drunk by Elton John, Jimi Hendrix, Rod Stewart, it wasn't incredibly cheap. Like nowadays, Matthias Rosé is about as cheap as, as wine gets. But in the, in the 60s, it was actually quite an expensive wine. But you're right, it was designed specifically for the, well, for the English, but also the American palate. It was, it was very aimed squarely at the American market too. And one of the other things was Italian wine, whereas French wine, we had the, the, the great chateaus of Bordeaux and, and, and possibly some knowledge of Burgundy, though maybe less. Italy was cheap Chianti for a very long time. And we had, I think we have the worst Italian restaurants in the world in Britain, probably until the 1960s and 70s. And so you had bad Italian restaurants buying bad Italian wine. And suddenly, you had the arrival of good Italian wine in those sort of times. It hasn't really happened with Spain as much, has it? I don't really know, actually. I suppose you now are seeing much better 
Spanish restaurants. You know, you used to have those brown dish microwave tapas places that were all the rage in the 80s and 90s. I remember them from my student days. And you just have very, very basic Rioja. I think that is beginning to change. You're certainly seeing in most larger towns, you'll see a better quality Spanish restaurant. You know, you'll have your Alberino and your wines from Galicia and better quality Rioja. And then the sort of long-awaited sherry revival that we keep hearing about. Yes, exactly what I was about to say, because sherry has been one of those, its revival has always been coming and never has quite come. And if you go back again to the, the 80s, the sort of advertising of trying to get people to drink, because we had cream sherry, sweet sherry, which no one else really had. It was a British invention. So you had companies like Croft trying to sell pale versions of the cream sherry to get people who would have been drinking dry wine, possibly to try the sweet wine. And we've got a great ad with Bertie Worcester and Jeeves the butler promoting it back in the 1980s. You know, Jeeves, there's only one snack about spending the weekend here with Lord Glastonbury. His Lordship's sherry, sir. Absolutely, Jeeves. That's why, sir, I took the liberty of bringing a bottle of your Croft original. Oh, Jeeves. Top hole! Beats me why the old buffer doesn't get some in. Lord Glastonbury is very set in his way, sir. I fear he regards a cream sherry like Croft original, with its light, delicate colour, somewhat too modern for him. Sheer nectar, Jeeves. Compared with his jolly old brown stuff, Croft's a clear winner. I say, Jeeves, clear winner. That's a joke. Very nearly, sir. Croft original pale cream sherry. One instinctively knows when something is right. The use of those upper-class voices really seems quite anachronistic today. I don't think anybody would use them to try to sell sherry today. And it didn't work then, but that was partly because of the way the stuff tasted. Yes, well, I've, I've accidentally tried it. I remember going to a restaurant and asking for a, a Fino and accidentally being given Croft Original. And it, it is peculiar because it looks just like a Fino, but it's as sweet as a cream sherry. And I would say not as nice as Harvey's Bristol Cream, which is actually quite tasty. So, Charles, can I come back to you? Because we've been talking very much about the UK, but you're sitting there in New York. What was happening in London in particular was influencing what was being drunk in the States, wasn't it? Absolutely. Certainly going way back into the uh, 18th and 19th centuries, London was setting the fashion for much of the United States. So our love of claret, uh, which you see in people like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and uh, George Washington, to a large degree, came both from some of the time they spent in Paris, but largely from English fashion, which was setting the trends over here. And that continued up through the, through the 19th century uh, and indeed into the 20th. In many ways, the things you've just been talking about in terms of the sweet wines, uh, we too as a nation, probably 10 to 15 years behind the Brits, sort of got to, well, the English have, have, have known wine in various phases of their history, obviously, as, as we've been discussing. But in many ways, we, didn't, we weren't really a wine-drinking nation on a major scale until the 1980s. So again, if, if England sort of started its modern wine, love of wine in the 1960s, for us, it was more the 1980s. And it was also fruit-driven wines that were so appealing. Before that, we had, just as you, Matus, uh, as we call it over here, for some reason it becomes just two syllables. Uh, we also had Liebfrau milk, uh, sweet wines that really appealed to a society that uh, drank Kool-Aid and Coca-Cola, uh, I suppose, were sort of the, the, the drinks that the people were referencing when they tasted wine. And um, that gradually became uh, a taste for drier wines. But really, we went through these big, round, fruit-driven California wines and then into Australian wines. So in many ways, uh, a very similar trend uh, as to what goes on has gone on in, in England, but just, uh, I would say, 15, 20 years behind in terms of the curve. 
But of course, now globalization means that trends hit the whole world roughly at the same time or far more than they did. So if you're drinking Prosecco in London, you may be drinking Prosecco in New York or Pinot Grigio everywhere. The, the one difference, I guess, is that in the States, you're making your own Pinot Grigio in California, as well as importing it from Italy. Absolutely. So yeah, I guess I would, I'm being unfair to say that the, the trend is no longer say, separated by, uh, by 10, 15 years. Now it really is very similar, right? So we, we are drinking Prosecco. We are drinking Pinot Grigio, uh, you know, some of the same trends. We have our own trends. Now, you know, there was Jura wines a few years ago were very, very hip. Natural wines are now very, very popular among young people who are getting into wine for the first time. Uh, so that in some ways we, we have the self-confidence now, I would say, and have for quite a few years to, to go in our own direction. But I think broadly speaking, there continue to be parallels uh, because we are big importers as well. We produce a huge amount of wine, obviously, in the way that the Brits don't. But we are also the single biggest importer of wines in the world. And the trends are still really being driven by Europe, though possibly now by other countries, including Austria and Eastern Europe and various other places. So it's no longer France dominating maybe as much as it did. I'd like to say thank you to Charles and Henry for taking part in this podcast. Um, I find it fascinating and there's a lot here that I can go on digging into a bit deeper. Stay tuned for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe to London Calling EU podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed it, please leave a review. Have a great Christmas, hopefully with plenty of what you enjoy drinking and wishing you all the best for 2023.